and welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to another episode of All of the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, along with Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. If you're watching this on YouTube, please remember to subscribe. If you're catching this on Facebook, remember to like our page and share this with your friends. And if you're listening to the audio-only podcast, just know that I'm wearing a lovely knit tie with polka dots, and I'm really feeling it and you're really missing out. But thank you for tuning in. Now we are excited to have you back and we've got another great episode for you today featuring two special guests. One, a principal manager who supports high schools in building a college-going culture. And the other, the founder of a nonprofit college access program that helps students navigate the path to college. With their expertise, we'll be exploring questions about our national movement towards college for all. Is college right for every student? How should schools operate in a world where a college degree is more important than ever? But first, we dive into some headlines in education in a segment we like to call The Warm Up. The city of Newark, New Jersey is rolling out a relatively unique project to help teachers find quality, affordable housing in the city, and it's called Teacher's Village. The four-block multi-use cluster of buildings includes 204 apartments intended for use by educators. 70% of these apartments are specifically reserved for teachers and are priced at 10 to 15% lower than local market rates. According to NJ.com, Teachers Village also includes three charter schools and 65,000 square feet of retail space that's slated for a convenience store, a cupcake bakery, medical services, restaurants, and a fresh food marketplace. Melody Hom writes on Yahoo.com that the project was made possible by the help of state tax credits and investments from groups like Goldman Sachs, TD Bank, and Prudential. The goal was to create a space where teachers could live comfortably without feeling burdened by the cost, because the city found that only 15% of its teachers lived in the city. District schools reportedly passed on the opportunity to move their schools into the development, while three charter schools that needed the space have apparently moved in. In Hom's article, Irene Hall, who lives at Teachers Village and is principal of one of the charter schools that moved in, was quoted as saying, I love being around other educators because, because we can share stories, talk, and learn from each other. Jeff, would you be down to live in a teacher's village? You know, I have to say there's something about this idea that just creeps me out a little bit. It uh, reminds me a bit of like a 19th century British coal town right. where like the, the company has housing right next to the mine and you just kind of walk back and forth every day. Right. Uh, there's something about that that makes me a little uncomfortable. That said, uh, you know, being someone who is uh, potentially on the verge of being priced out of my apartment uh, right near downtown Los Angeles, uh, you know, I'm not complaining about a 10 to 15% discount on market rates. Uh, so I could see both sides, but I'm, I'm a little weird out, weirded out by the idea. Yeah, I think definitely the effort to help teachers find affordable housing is great. Um, the idea of working where you live is kind of kind of different work-life balance is already a struggle for educators and yeah. um, I don't know if I'd want to live at my workplace because you know it's a bit much but you know we'll see how this goes yeah we will uh, next up we turn to a story out of Washington DC controversial US Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos gave her first public speech of 2018 in mid-January at the American Enterprise Institute and she had no short supply of shade to throw around Teachers unions, past presidents going back to Jimmy Carter, under whose watch the U.S. Department of Education was founded, 
and even her predecessors in the Secretary of Education position were her targets. Taking shots at George W. Bush and Barack Obama, she said, we saw two presidents from different political parties and philosophies take two different approaches, federally mandated assessments, federal money, federal standards, all originated in Washington and none solved the problem. Citing the entire enterprise of public education as we know it as a lost cause, she said, politicians from both parties just can't help themselves. Each attempt has really just been a new coat of paint on the same old wall. When we try the same thing over and over again, yet expect different results, that's not reform, that's insanity. Manuel, Betsy DeVos is a bit of a lightning rod in Washington, to say the least. She knows a little bit about education, and it often shows. But in this case, is she right to be casting aspersions on the federal role in education, or is she off base? Look, that quote that she had about insanity and doing the same thing and expecting different results has got to be the most played out cliche quote out there. I'm tired of hearing people use that quote. They attribute it to Einstein. There's no record that Einstein ever actually said that. The only thing insane in this case is that we have a secretary of education with no real experience in the field of education. And here she is throwing shots at past presidents and their policies. While I've criticized both, policy, both presidents' policies several times, there definitely is something positive in each of those policies. Even No Child Left Behind, which I was never a fan of, at least its assessment and accountability system has helped produce some data about certain subgroups that schools used to be able to, um, to hide and tuck away. So um, every, each of the policies has something positive to it. And just to you know, paint this wide brush of like, none of this is working and, and we're not getting anywhere, like no one policy is going to be the solution to our problems in education. But you know, to hear her talk and criticize um, their policies, you know, I wonder how much she even knows about those policies. Yeah. Yeah. Leave it to Bessie DeVos to make me find something good that George W. Bush did or said. Right. Exactly. It's just, you know, each time she speaks, it's just grinds my gears all over again. The fact that she's our secretary of education. Yeah. There's so many other qualified candidates out there. All right. So now for our third story for today's warm up. And this deals with the very difficult topic of school shootings. School shootings are an ongoing tragic reality that's facing our students and teachers today. In order to attempt to better prepare school employees for an active shooter, a new digital simulation is being rolled out, rolled out this spring. Jason M. Bailey explores this new computer simulation in a recent New York Times article. The simulation created by the federal government is meant to train teachers how to respond to an active shooter. It's modeled after a real school and includes 20 classrooms, a library, a cafeteria, and a gymnasium with blue padded walls as part of its intensely realistic look. Although many schools, like mine, practice lockdown or active shooter drills, districts may utilize this computer simulation to train staff members to make decisions under pressure. Bailey writes that in a demo video, students in the simulation huddle in a corner awaiting orders from the teacher, who must select one of seven commands, including get out through a window, or find a place to hide, or follow me. In the simulation, Users can choose to be students, school employees, law enforcement, or even the shooter himself. Said shooter can be programmed to be a child or an adult. The Army Research Laboratory, which created the simulation, says that an advantage of the program is that scenarios can be run repeatedly, avoiding the cost and disruption of real life drills. 
Also, it is, of course, a way to increase the emotional response and experience of training for an active shooter. Jeff, is this a wise approach for addressing the very real threat of school shootings? Well, uh, I think the answer is no. Um, obviously, we just uh, recently experienced uh, the particular tragedy in Florida. Um, um, closer to us recently, we had a, a shooting at a public school in Los Angeles as well. Um, so these are very real issues, and I don't mean to dismiss the fact that schools need to be uh, taking proper precautions to help uh, ensure the safety on campus. As a, as a principal, I went through training for lockdown and shelter-in drills, and that's good leadership to be prepared for scenarios that uh, we need to be prepared for to ensure student safety. That said, this is pouring resources into uh, you know, creating fictional reenactments of these horrible situations that simply shouldn't be happening. The reality is this is an avoidable problem. We are not doing the things from a policy perspective that we need to do and creating a video game where teachers and administrators can play the school shooter just doesn't sit right with me. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, I truly believe we as a country can accomplish anything that we pour our resources and heart into and to create a digital simulation tech technology wise is like wow look at this marvel that we've created to where you could simulate such a tragic event and, and use it to train but I wonder what if those resources were poured towards something more helpful in the sense of uh, more counselors and therapists available at school more more to address the uh, different problems that perhaps um, have motivated so many school shooters. And as a teacher, there's no way I want to sit in any sort of professional development where I am putting myself in the shoes of one of these shooters and training in any kind of way. That's just something that I, I don't think any teacher signed up for the profession to have to go through that kind of training. And there's got to be other solutions um, outside of this, and there definitely are, so. Yeah, when the Army is developing professional development training scenario tactical right. games that for teachers, we know we've reached a serious problem. Absolutely, that says it all. Yeah. All right, so that's it for today's warm up. And in a moment, we're going to have a segment we like to call Show and Tell. All right, for today's Show and Tell, Manuel, what'd you bring in for us? All right, so for today, I brought a paintbrush. And if you're listening to an audio podcast, just know it's a worn out brush that's clearly told many colorful stories. And it's not just any old brush. It's a brush that represents the underrated and underappreciated role that the arts play in education. Arts programs, and I'm talking visual arts, performing arts, music, and all of the above, see what I did there, have been under attack for years. And they were dealt a near death blow by the No Child Left Behind high stakes testing era. Schools slashed arts classes left and right to make room for double blocks of math, English, and anything else that they thought could help them boost their academic performance index and look good on paper. When the Great Recession hit in 2008, school budget cuts decimated the meager arts programs that had managed to survive the advent of No Child Left Behind. Cuts to the arts come despite the fact that research overwhelmingly indicates that a solid arts education can boost overall student performance and educational outcomes. For example, a study in the Journal of Neuroscience showed that structural brain changes happen after only 15 months of musical training in early childhood. Students who have a robust arts education perform better academically than students with no arts education, and they become more confident, collaborative, and creative than students who don't take arts classes. And despite all this research, we've moved towards an emphasis on college and career prep with the arts being a mere afterthought. 
The most recent arts assessment data from the National Assessment of Educational Progress shows that less than half of the nation's eighth graders have taken a visual arts class. Oh, and that visual arts number, that's nationally. Looked at by region, 68% of eighth graders in the Northeast took a visual arts class, but down South, only 35% of those students did. Oh, and for those of us out here on the West side of things, only 33% of our eighth graders have had a visual arts class. These cuts have been real, especially for students in big urban districts like Los Angeles Unified, where only 35 out of 700 schools earned an A grade for their arts programs in a recent LA Times analysis. Cuts affecting arts programs happen to be heavily concentrated in black and Hispanic school districts like Los Angeles. A recent study by the National Endowment of the Arts showed that 26% of young black adults have had a childhood arts ed education. Back in 1982, that number was over 50%. This 49% drop compares to just a 5% drop in the number of white adults who received a childhood arts education across that same time period. This mixture of budget cuts and an overemphasis on test scores and pushing students into competitive career fields has done great damage to arts offerings in our schools, and we must fight to build these programs back up. We shouldn't have situations where band teachers are split between multiple schools, spending half their workday driving from one site to another, or situations where art teachers are spending money out of their own pockets for art supplies. And we shouldn't have students needing to rely solely on after school or summer programs to get a hold of a paintbrush. What have we done? How many brilliant world-changing potential artists have we lost to the office cubicle? No disrespect intended to those of you on cubicles. Shout out to all the individual art and music teachers out there fighting the good fight against the odds. I wanna shout out the non-arts teachers who embed the arts into their curriculum and offer students the opportunity to creatively express their learning through art. I wanna shout out all the grants and charitable funding that are helping to keep arts programs afloat. I wanna shout out nonprofits like Bigger Than Us Arts in Sacramento and all the great organizations out there fighting to fill the gap left by our misdirected school funding. I want to shout out all my former students who went on to pursue the arts, even my former student who played in the USC Trojan Band, which is the second best college band in Los Angeles. And I want to shout out all of our student helpers who are behind these cameras working on the weekend to help us create this show. And again, for those of you who are just listening to the podcast, you're missing out on the great work that they're doing. So that's my show and tell for today. I want to bring back arts in American schools. Um, and well, really powerful words. I think uh, I absolutely could not agree more that uh, the arts is an area of education we've neglected and we've done so at our own expense. Um, we have hard data, we have psychological data, we have just knowing what it's like to be in school and see the impact of the arts. All of that tells us this is incredibly important and uh, we just, we, we have to invest more in this area. Absolutely, and uh, lastly, I'd like to shout out Miss Lake for letting me borrow this uh, colorful Art brush for the show and tell. Thank you very much. Despite a recent decline, college enrollment has seen dramatic growth since World War II. The National Center for Education Statistics reports that roughly 20 million people are enrolled in a degree-granting post-secondary institution, and enrollment is projected to exceed 23 million by 2025. Over 40% of all 18 to 24 year olds are enrolled in a degree granting institution. 10% of 18 to 24 year olds are enrolled in a two year college and roughly 30% are enrolled in a four year college. 
These figures differ by race and by class. The college enrollment rate for white 18 to 24 year olds is 42%, whereas the rates for their black and Hispanic peers are 35% and 36.6% respectively. Asian Americans enroll at the highest rate, 62.6%, while the enrollment rate for Pacific Islanders and American Indians is 24% and 23% respectively. In terms of economic status, 82% of high school graduates from high-income families enroll in college, while just 52% of low-income graduates do. Whereas higher education was long considered to be primarily a benefit to society and to the welfare of the nation, it has more recently been viewed as an economic benefit to the individual. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that a person with only a high school diploma earns an average of $692 a week. People with an associate's degree earn an average of $819 a week. Bachelor's degree holders earn $1,156 a week. And those with professional degrees earn, on average, $1,745 a week. A rapid increase in tuition rates and in student borrowing has led to what some are calling the student loan crisis. The New York Federal Reserve estimates that there are currently 44 million student loan borrowers owing a total of $1.3 trillion in outstanding debt. This is up from $243 billion in 2003 and $586 billion in 2008. A recent Pew Research Center poll found that only 51% of degree earners with student loan debt think that the benefits of having attended college outweigh the costs. 29% said that the costs outweigh the benefits. So with all of that rich data in mind, the question we're gonna be grappling with today is, is college still the right move? And with schools cr across the country seeking to build a college-going culture, are the inequities in college access being properly addressed? To help us explore the landscape of college access today, we have with us two very special guests who work on college access issues in Los Angeles area schools. To my left is Rachel Bonkowski. Uh, Rachel is the Senior Director of School Transformation at the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools. Uh, the partnership is a local nonprofit that manages and supports 18 public schools in Los Angeles. And Rachel supervises high school principals and also uh, heads up the organization's work around college-going culture. Um, to her left is Mo Hyman. Uh, Mo has a rich 20-year history working uh, as an English professor and also co-founder of a college access nonprofit called College Access Plan that currently serves about 1,500 students in middle schools, high schools, and uh, in college annually. Welcome, Rachel and Mo, to the show. Thanks. Yeah. So to start us off, um, you know, we, we heard a bunch about some of the data uh, for college and what's what's working well and maybe where some of the inequities are. But we'd love to hear a little bit about your work um, and what you do around college access. So maybe Mo, we'll start with you. Thanks. Um, so college access plan, really the idea is that every student should have access to information about college and be able to make fully informed decisions about where to go, whether to go, and all of the questions they might have, they should have answered by informed adults with all of the information um, around what it means to go to college. And so our organization really just started right here in Pasadena at uh, serving our public schools with that basic information. And the idea is to just open a door and offer that information to any student. There are no requirements. There's no barriers to entry. It doesn't matter 
you can drop in after school. It doesn't matter if you can stay for five minutes or for two hours. And so it really is just removing the barriers that create an inequitable system to college access. All right. Um, so similar, but a little different. Um, we work with, uh, I work specifically with five high schools, but we have 18 schools K-12. And um, we've been doing a lot of thinking in our organization over the last couple of years about college going and college going access and just even the academic indicators needed to gain access to college down the road. So we've really launched a K-12 um, initiative around college access and really focusing around students seeing themselves as college going from the start having parents and students understand what they need to do to get into and through college. Um, and then finally having the academic skills needed to both get into and then persist through college. Um, similarly, we also just are focused with our high schools and high school counselors, making sure that, um, I love what you said, making sure that all kids have access um, and have the information they need to make good decisions about their future. All right, so our schools, across the country um, fight to build college-going cultures among their students. The question is, in 2018, should every kid go to college? Um, probably not for their own happiness, uh, but <laughs> should every kid have what it takes or what they need to access a four-year college? I think absolutely. So when I think about sort of the history of our country, and the history of who has had access to institutes of higher education. It has predominantly been students who come from a more affluent background or have light skin. Um, and so I, I personally, and I think uh, a lot of us share this idea that we want all of our students to have access to those decisions and that we shouldn't be making the decisions for them as early as second grade or fourth grade or sixth grade of like, oh, you're gonna go to a Vogue school or which is fine if that's what they want, but that shouldn't be predetermined for them um, because of some characteristic that they walk into a school with. Yep. Yeah, students should make informed choices, right? The number one determinant of whether or not a student goes to college is whether or not their parents did, that's it. Not grades, not test scores, but whether or not their parents did. And that's not an equitable situation, right? right. That does not offer equal access to a college education. That is a caste system. That is simply saying you can't go because your parents didn't go. And we're really trying to break down those barriers so that every student has the same information, that baseline knowledge, and they can make an informed decision. And if when they're a senior in high school, they say, yes, I have all the information, I have been completely informed, and I'm opting out, mm -hmm. that's great. But it shouldn't be an opt-in for some students mm -hmm. and an opt-out for others. Yeah, I think uh, what you're both saying really resonates uh, with me, certainly about the, the importance of making sure kids have the option. I wonder sometimes um, in, in the world of sort of parsing out, well, where's the point at which kids should make decisions or we should help them make decisions about what pathway is right for them? Um, I think we probably all agree that, you know, uh, writing off kids in elementary school is wrong, right? Um, but at what point do we uh, responsibly engage with kids and say, this is what you're interested in, this is maybe a, a path that's good and going to help you achieve that path, whether that's at a four-year college or a two-year college or some other training program, when should that happen responsibly? I, I have pretty, I have fairly strong feelings <laughs> about all this stuff, but 
I really do think that if you put all options, all post-secondary pathways on the table all along and students are able to explore all of them, then they're informed, right? But I just reject the idea that a 14-year-old or a 16-year-old or an 18-year-old um, automatically and equally across the board that they all know, it, right? We all figure ourselves out at different points in our lives and at different points in our experience. And some of us are much older when we really decide the career path that's right for us. So the idea that we need to inculcate students at 6, 8, 12, 16 with a specific pathway to me just doesn't make any sense based on our actual experience in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should ever say, nope, this is the pathway for you. The idea is that students explore their superpowers, right? What are you interested in? Explore it, explore it in every possible way. And it's our job as adults to open as many doors as possible, not to close them along the way and to shoehorn them into this path or that path at some arbitrary point, but to help them learn how to not only follow their superpowers, but to talk about and articulate the change in their own interests, right? Why, did, why were you interested in photography when you were 14, but now you're just sort of like not as interested in it? It's not about saying, uh-oh, you changed your interest. It's about talking to them about how do you talk about that change in yourself? How do you articulate to other people? No, you know what? This is why I changed my interest and why my interest changed. And this is where my interests are now. And I don't know if they're going to be the same in 20 years. I think we need to shift the language that we use around how we talk about what students are into. Um, yeah, I was going to say like 35 or 40. <laughs> <laughs> That's a much shorter answer to where yes, I went, went yes, off on. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things I really appreciate about our education system in the United States is that we don't predetermine a pathway for mm -hmm. our students, whereas I spent a fair amount of time in Europe, and I also had the, the great um, sort of honor to visit China a few years ago. And they predetermine things much earlier. So at, at eighth grade, you're choosing whether you're going to go a vocational school or whether you're going to go more of a higher ed pathway. And I can't imagine having had to make that choice in eighth grade myself. And I appreciate that we, we try to leave as many doors open as we can um, for our students and for ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. It actually makes me think of a conference I went to a few months back where they had a student panel and they had a fifth grader up there. And the fifth grader was asked what college he wants to go to. Mm. He not only answered with a university that he wants to go to, he was able to name the major, the requirements for the major, and why that fits his career aspirations. So the whole room like marveled at this mm -hmm. fifth grader who was able to articulate all that. Um, but I was sitting there wondering, like, well, clearly he has been led to yeah. explore this by somebody. And I wonder how much he feels the freedom to still you know, explore and waver from that plan because he had it so, so yeah. right. So although in, the, in our system, of course, we uh, don't predetermine for students, but for him, I, I was questioning whether or not his school in one way or another was sort of like yeah. pushing students towards mm -hmm. determining at that at fifth grade. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like there's this like fine line, right? Because whether it's your school, whether it's your parents who are like, you're going to grow up and I want you to be a doctor just like right. me or you know, and then, and at some point you realize, no, I'm going to be a teacher or, you know, right, like, right, no, right. I'm going to go do something totally different. <laughs> um, and, and you have to have the sort of confidence and the, 
uh, feel like you have enough choice and agency to make, make that just determination yourself. Mm -hmm. Whether it's your school who's been pushing the narrative or whether it's your family or whoever's been holding that narrative for you, you know? Exactly. So. Yeah. So I think, you know, our panel here is comprised of uh, very well-educated individuals who have spent our entire careers working in education and valuing the importance of education. Uh, and that's wonderful. But um, I want to kind of play devil's advocate for a minute. And, and um, you know, our national data tells us that about 40% of adults in the United States have a college degree. So the majority of folks do not. And, uh, you know, certainly there is uh, some, some privilege and benefits that comes with having a college degree, but there are also lots of careers and lots of job opportunities that either don't require a college degree or certainly don't require a four-year degree. And so, um, you know, the, the question I'm thinking about is if we push, if we're successful in our push to get all students to go to college, doesn't that just lower the value of a college degree and then does that actually wind up not addressing the issues around choice and opportunity and social mobility that we, we hope to address by pushing everyone to go to college? So um, I was thinking about this a little bit. And for me, I, I think I went to the uh, analogy of high school, like a high school diploma. So 50 years ago, I think you didn't have to necessarily have a high school diploma to have an okay job and to have a fair amount of access to, to doing whatever career you wanted. And now we find ourselves in a place where that's really no longer true. I mean, you can get by without a high school diploma, but it's tough. And I, so I think about the college, the college question too, like, I don't think it's going to become less value. In fact, maybe it will be more so. Like if you don't have a college diploma, it's going to be similar to what it's like now without a high school diploma. So that's one way I was, I was thinking about it. Um, my, the short answer is no. Um, I think that we just have to think about the way that our, uh, let, let's look at the state of California. In the state of California, it is estimated that 68% of the jobs by 2020 will require a college degree. So 40% of us are going to college. We're not there yet. Mm. We're not at 68%. So I'm not worried about 100%. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I, we, we're not there. We're not moving that quickly that we're going to be there. And so it's projected that by 2030, we will actually, in the state of California, have a great deficit. We won't be able to fill the jobs that are in California in the future. And we'll have to go elsewhere to fill those jobs if we don't educate our diverse population here in California. And that's what we want, right? But there are other parts of a college education that are so beneficial mm -hmm. that we don't usually talk about. One is that people who go to college are the most civically engaged. And if we want diverse leaders in our future, if we don't want to see, for example, presidents that are all but one <laughs> look in exactly the same shade, we need to think about what does it mean to be civically engaged in our country? And that can also be on a local level, right? What do our city councils look like? What do our school boards look like? Mm. And, and being civically engaged matters to what our country looks like by that 2030 measure. Um, the other piece that I think is really important is that education is so tied to so many other elements of our lives. The people, people who go to college have the best health care. They are the most, they are the healthiest, right? That all matters, especially when we look at healthcare across communities, especially when we look at healthcare in our African-American communities, where our communities, low-income communities are plagued with 
diabetes are plagued with um, mothers who are dying in childbirth, which shouldn't be happening in our country at this time. And a lot of that has to do with stress factors related to health and education. Those things are intertwined. And there are so many other factors. And if I open that can of worms, we'll never stop. But the point is, education is a way of achieving a workaround to the systems that have been unfair and unequal in our country for a long, long time. All right, so technology is moving rapidly and there are more and more online offerings than there have ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, at the school I work at, we sometimes have guests from certain schools where they only have um, majors related to video game design, or computer science, and uh, the level of specialization when it comes to post-secondary options seems to be at a point that we're not historically used to. So when we do have college weeks or college-themed days at um, in K-12 schools, a lot of times the emphasis is on four-year traditional colleges. Is that still the emphasis that we should be placing, or do we need to sort of broaden our scope of how we view post-secondary options given what technology has done? <laughs> I'll defer to you. If it, uh, yeah, go for it. So I think that it's always a both and. Yeah, there, you know, um, we're talking about exploring all post-secondary options, and that means that all options should be open to students, but we should also talk really honestly with students, especially those that don't have a college-going history in their family. And so there are a lot of options, but some of them aren't as good as others, right? There are a lot of for-profit colleges, for example, that specifically target first-generation college goers and that don't that say, we'll give you a scholarship, and then they give them a scholarship for one year, and then it costs, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a year, mm-hmm. and people never finish in some of those programs. That's not universal. That's not all of them. But helping students to do that research, helping students to know what those options are. Um, I'm also just kind of old school. I'm a big fan of a liberal arts education in the traditional context of actually interacting with other students right. and interacting with professors and talking to um, professors, self being a, becoming a strong self advocate, and that in the education space, I think is really important to building that civic leadership of the future. Um, so I'm a little bit resistant to all online programs, but I'm not personally against them if that's what students are open to. I just think everything's a conversation. Everything is an exploration. I want um, our students to teach me differently through research and knowledge. Yeah, I was thinking about, um, I'm not a huge online fan, um, not because there's anything inherently wrong with it, but I think I've, I've spent so much time in education and thinking about how people learn Mm-hmm. And so much of it is about that social interaction and talking and dialoguing and just, you know, spitting back ideas. Not that that can't happen through an online platform, but I think there's something really rich to being in a classroom with people who don't look like you, who don't come from the same place as you, and who you can really share ideas with and learn from. Um, and then if you're, you know, able to go away and live out of state or just even live in a different city, that's a whole other set of experiences that you have that. I think really enriches you personally if you're able to take that on. So, um, yeah, I'm not. I don't think I could say no online, but I just think there's so much to be said for that in-person experience at a college or a university. Yeah, I think a lot about this issue. I've had uh, both an online 
uh, higher ed experience mm -hmm. and uh, and the traditional higher ed experiences over the years. And um, I kind of had thought of uh, the difference between the two being somewhat similar to the difference between like seeing a great Facebook post about a friend's wedding mm -hmm. and having actually been at <laughs> the funny. friend's wedding. Uh, <laughs> and that's not to belittle the Facebook post, right? right. Like that's, you, you feel great and you see it and you, you know, see who is there, but there is something qualitatively different about um, the physical experience of being with people um, as opposed to the maybe slightly more abstract experience mm -hmm. of experiencing mm -hmm. it through this digital, digital medium. Yeah. 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 So um, when we focus on uh, college for all, I think um, what I have certainly seen in schools tends to be, I think, mo more what you just described a moment ago, which is the, uh, the emphasis on pushing for a four year college. And um, I, I know Rachel can uh, can speak to this as well. And there's a lot of good rationale for why. Um, we, we make that push and why, particularly in low-income communities, we need to move the needle in that area. Um, but for our students who, who right now are um, a very large chunk of our students who are not pursuing a four-year education, um, what message are they receiving um, when we're pushing four-year college for all? And um, what do you think uh, we might need to do to, to better reach that group of students? I think we need most program. <laughs> so, I mean, one of my big frustration points in all of this is that we just, you know, if we think about the teach uh, the counselor ratio to students, it's like 500 to 1 or 400 to 1. And so even if we wanted to give everybody all the right information, it's really difficult. So if we're going to choose what information to give, I, I veer towards, well, let's tell everybody four-year college because of all these sort of statistics and life outcomes. But yeah, we're leaving out a bunch of kids who, you know what, that's just not going to be right for them. So I think, but it's a difficult place to be at because that's, I think, what you raised is true. Like, it, it's not going to be right for everybody. But then there are kids who are left thinking like, well, what about me? And what does that mean about me if I'm not going for a year? So I think we need more programs where they're learning about all of the options early on so people can make better decisions, but that's really hard to pull off in our current setup, especially in California, I think. I'm so glad that you brought up counselors, and I'll, um, I tend to be blunt. You guys probably figured that out by now. Um, but one really true blunt thing that I believe is that I hear so much, especially around public education, well, what are our counselors doing? What are our counselors doing? And my answer is literally everything. Mm -hmm. They're literally doing mm -hmm. everything. They have 12 jobs. And so I always kind of flip the script on that and say, look, at private schools, not to throw them under the bus, but if a counselor has 100 students and we know data showing that 25% of those parents are still paying for external counseling, college counseling, and more than 25% are paying at least for test prep and other things, we're not there yet. Again, we don't have equitable access to information and knowledge. And I am so fortunate because we do one thing at CAP. We're college experts, that's it. We don't do the academic side, we're not tutors, we don't need to do IEPs, we don't need to do all, all of the scheduling and stuff that counselors need to do. We have one job, <laughs> and that's to give students all of their post-secondary options in a really meaningful way where they feel that they've had the opportunity to explore on their own terms, that's it. And so I think before we get to the point of saying, 
what happens if everybody doesn't feel right with the information they're getting, my question is, what happens when everybody has all the information? Then we can start asking the questions about what's missing. But right now, not everybody has the information and not everybody has the access. And that's a much more important issue to me. Um, because once those students know exactly what their options are, they're going to feel more empowered to then say, yeah, that's not for me, which is completely different than making that decision without the information. Great points, great points. So if I'm a parent of a high schooler and I'm hearing all these great things and great reasons why my kids should go to college, but if I'm struggling economically and I'm also hearing about the student loan crisis and the ballooning uh, debt that um, students are piling up, how big of a consideration should that be in my thinking about helping my student, my child go to college? It's about the match, right? It's about matching a student with the right college option for them. Because if you do, especially low-income, first-generation college goers, there's billions, literally billions, maybe more, of dollars left on the table in scholarship money, in federal Pell Grants every single year. And so first, we need to make sure that students are taking advantage of all of the free money that's on the table, that they're getting their FAFSAs completed on time, their DREAM Act application if they're a California student who's undocumented, that they're getting they're gaining access to those dollars. Mm -hmm. The other most important thing to the student debt crisis is college completion. So yes, absolutely, we don't want students taking out loans that they that are ridiculous, that are beyond what they could ever reasonably repay, but there is amounts that are reasonable to take out and to repay based on how much money people will make when they leave college. There are ways to calculate that, but more important is that they complete. Right. And that's one thing that we need to do. Organizations like PAP, we do do. We work with students through college success to try to make sure that they graduate. But even more importantly, we need to make sure that our colleges, we're holding our colleges accountable to serving the students, to serving first generation college goers, to serving African-American and Asian Pacific Islander and Hispanic students equitably so that those students do feel like they have access to the resources they need to persist and graduate. Yeah, I don't have too much to add. I think there's a lot of money out there. I think maybe the one thing I'll add is just around also bringing parents in earlier into the conversation. We're definitely seeing, um, particularly with the current political climate, a lot of folks not wanting to turn in their FAFSAs because their parents just don't want to fill out the paperwork. And if we can start earlier having parents be aware of that that's coming and what that means, and it doesn't mean that you're your stuff is going to get shared with the um, uh, whatever with ice, I guess, yeah. you know, um, then I think we need to get ahead of that. So that's the one piece I would add. And for parents to understand that sometimes their students, in order to get through college faster <laughs> with less loan debt, sometimes they have to go away a little bit. There's a comfort factor mm -hmm. that you just can't you can't deal with when a student is a senior in high school and suddenly you're saying your student might go all the way across the country. A lot of families feel really uncomfortable with that. And that might not be the right choice for all students. But again, it's about having the information. If a student, if a parent knows in when their kid is in elementary school that they might have this full range of college options someday, 
they feel a little bit more better prepared for it. It's much harder to prepare families for that reality late in the game. Yeah. yeah. Then they can make informed choices that are best for them, but they can't make those informed choices if they don't have the information. Right. Yeah. I think so much of what you're you're both saying here today really makes me think of the the long game in this work, right? And you know, my own experience, I just I don't remember a time uh, not thinking that I was going to go to college, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, whether it was watching football games as a kid and thinking of it through that lens, or um, you know, or thinking about it like, where did my parents go, and I'll go where they went. Uh, but it was always just a norm and an expectation, and so. Uh, you know, the, the importance of building or supporting the building of, of that work with families in the early grades, um, helping kids really visualize themselves as this being a real possibility for my future, uh, to me at least stands out as, as like the, the foundation upon which the rest of the work needs to be built. Because uh, trying to start the conversation in 11th grade is, is too late. Mm-hmm. And yet you still have to triage a little bit, right? Those are also the students who have the most immediate needs. And you can't always start all the way at kindergarten with every student. What happens to your your 11th and 12th graders today? So you have to do both at the same time. You have to start at that end to make sure that all of your seniors 100% have the information they need, but also start with kids in kindergarten, kids at zero. Kids in utero. I'm into that. <laughs> I'm into in utero college information. <laughs> uh, alma mater playing on the, uh, on the stomach. Yes. <laughs> All right. So then our final question for you, and I think uh, a lot of this has already um, come through in what you've said so far. A lot, of, a lot of folks view access to college as a means for upward mobility, particularly for marginalized populations and low-income families. Um, is your work sort of centered around that idea of college as a means for uh, marginalized populations to be able to um, climb? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think um, I think part of what our organization does is that we, we work with sort of historically underserved communities and we want to see those communities have access to higher ed and bring back that experience to then enrich their communities further. So. I think that's certainly part of the lens. I also think selfishly, when I think of my college experience, it's, you know, without a doubt, one of the most, um, I'll use the word selfish again, the most selfish times of my life. So mm-hmm. it was, I didn't have to think too much about money beyond like, I'm going to do my, my work while I'm here and um, do my cafeteria job and go to my classes and, but do what I want to do, like hang out with my friends and go to parties and learn a crazy sport that I've never heard of before. And you don't get that chance again. Like you don't get to do that again in life. And so there's also part of me that just wants that for all of our kids, right? Like go have these years where you get to like, just think about your own interests for a while, you know? And I, I mean, yeah, so I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, well, fascinating discussion. I uh, really want to thank uh, both of our guests today uh, for joining us. Mo Hyman, uh, co-founder of College Access Plan, and Rachel Bonkowski of the Partnership for Los Angeles Schools. Um, and folks, you can find more um, conversation with our two guests. We'll have special one-on-one interviews available um, in the episode extras on our website. That's aotashow.com. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Wow, that was a great seminar discussion. Yeah. Um, lots, of, lots of powerful statements made there. Um, remember to check out our website, aotashow.com, for episode extras, including some one-on-one -on -one interviews with our guests. But now it's time for a segment that we call The Assessment. Jeff, what would you like to assess today? Well, unless you've been living under a rock, you probably know that at the very end of 2017, the Republican Congress and Donald Trump passed landmark tax legislation, the so-called Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The new law, which is now in effect, brings with it massive changes to the tax code and to the distribution of wealth in our society. Key changes in the legislation include the biggest single reduction to the corporate tax rate in history, amounting to a $1 trillion cut for big business over the next decade. Temporary tax reductions for most Americans that begin phasing out in eight years. Tax cuts for the richest Americans earning over $500,000 a year. Reductions to the estate tax so the super wealthy can now give twice as much, up to $22 million, tax-free to their heirs. And a key attack on Obamacare ending the critical individual mandate rule, which helps to reduce health insurance costs. In total, economists estimated that the tax bill will require the United States to go into 1.5 trillion, that's with a T, in debt to cover the cuts. And this is already coming true. On February 3rd, the Federal Reserve announced that the United States is on track to borrow nearly 1 trillion in 2018, almost double what it borrowed the previous year and that number is set to increase each of the next two years. This massive increase is, according to the Congressional Budget Office, the direct result of lower tax revenue from the new law. Now, some of you may feel your eyes crossing. Trillions and billions and 10-year projections sounds like a complicated mess. And it is. But there are some very real consequences we need to be thinking about for our public schools. The federal government directly contributes somewhere around 8% of the funding for K-12 public schools in this country. The vast majority of school funding comes from state and local sources, namely from property taxes. And so you may say 8%, you know, no big deal. The feds have less money to give to schools because of tax cuts, but they only give a small slice of the overall pie anyhow. But that 8% is really only part of the story. First of all, cuts to that 8% alone would have a devastating consequence, particularly in low-income communities and to students with special needs, as both groups receive a larger share of federal funding. We've already heard comments from Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos calling into question her commitment to Title I funding and to the provision of services for students with special needs. So the concern is definitely warranted. But beyond the sting of federal cuts that would impact schools directly, we must consider the ripple effect of this legislation in two major areas, states' ability to maintain adequate funding for schools and the social impacts on the communities that will adversely impact students' home lives. As the federal government has less money coming in, it's a near certainty that a Republican-controlled Congress will cut spending on a host of programs. This is likely to include everything from environmental regulations that help reduce asthma rates in school communities, to healthcare services, to cuts to key social programs like SNAP, commonly known as food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. And indeed, the budget that Donald Trump recently released and submitted to Congress already proposes massive cuts to all of these programs. 
Cuts to these programs will have a massive destabilizing effect on state budgets. As federal spending goes down, state and local spending will need to compensate. This will place state and local governments in the position of making tough choices between funding for schools and funding for things like care for the elderly, or funding for parks, or funding for hospitals and community clinics, or funding to support people struggling with substance abuse. We would be foolish to ignore the threat this poses to schools and districts all across the nation. Someone is going to pay for these massive cuts in revenue. The question is, will it ultimately wind up being our students? Whether the cuts are directly impacting school funding, or whether they cause a ripple of reduced funding to communities, or whether they simply make life much harder, more unstable, and more traumatic for the most marginalized communities, the effects of having fewer resources and a tougher time making it for families will be felt profoundly in our schools. The good news is, what is done by people can be undone by people. Tax cuts for corporations at a time when corporate profits are soaring and stocks are at historic highs can be undone. Tax rates on wealthy individuals can be raised again. Funding levels can be restored. But of course, the work of doing the damage is easy and the work of undoing it is tough. It will take courage from politicians and it will take relentless pressure and high voter turnout from communities. The great Nelson Mandela famously once said, it always seems impossible until it's done. We, for the sake of our schools, must confront that which might seem impossible in this moment to protect schools and ultimately our students all across the country. So it seems like you are sort of against the recent tax reform. Just just a little, Slight. just a tiny bit. Slight. Um, <laughs> So absolutely, I agree uh, with your very powerful words there. I, as a 14-year classroom teacher, have always felt that schools were under attack in one way or another, whether, mm -hmm. whether it was high-stakes accountability, whether it was the recession and, bud and budget cuts there, and now with uh, this tax reform. And it shouldn't feel that way. It shouldn't feel that the public school system is always in dire straits, but it seems to always feel that way. But like you said, what has been done can be undone, and it's very important that those who care about American public schooling go out there and be heard and for sure vote in the um, November election coming up and do everything possible to spread the word about how vital funding for public schools are is. So thank you. Yeah, uh, we are the wealthiest country in the history of history. Uh, we have the resources. We can solve the problems that we have the will to solve. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right, thank you for that assessment. All right, folks, we have just about reached the end of the show, and it's been a good one. We've talked about everything, college access and uh, gun violence in schools and all of the above. Uh, just make sure, folks, uh, like and follow our page on Facebook, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, and, of course, uh, on SoundCloud and iTunes for our audio podcast. Uh, before we go, we have our segment we like to call The Dismissal. Manuel, what do you got for us? All right, so I want to shout out a, non-pro- a nonprofit program that I mentioned during today's show and tell. That's BTU, or Bigger Than Us Arts, which offers free music classes, arts petting zoos, after-school programs, and community arts events to kids in South Sacramento, which is where I grew up. They're out here making sure our kids get the arts education that they need, no matter how under-resourced their schools are. 
So shout out to Benoit Shepard and Bigger Than Us Arts. All right, and today I want to give a very special shout out to the mighty Rough Riders from Theodore Roosevelt High School in Los Angeles. They're just doing some amazing things around promoting their school these days and uh, were recently written up in a local paper for this super dope promotional video that we'll show you right now. Roosevelt, one of Los Angeles' most historic high schools, has been on a rise for many years now. And this is just one fun example of the great stuff happening at that school. Shout out to Principal Ben Gertner and the entire Mighty Rough Rider family. All right, and that'll do it. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned for the next one.